Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll visit the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. The oldest thing we have in the collection is a uh, map from 1571, a French map. Remembering racial segregation in Florida. At night, that was a bell that they rang, and uh, the bell was an indication that it was time for black folk to get out of town. And we'll go to the old custom house in Key West. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. This is the uh, research library, the Florida Historical Society. We were founded, the society was founded in 1856 in St. Augustine, but then their collection was destroyed during the Civil War. Deborah Wynn is archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. She's giving us a tour of the facility and its extensive collection. It was refounded again in Jacksonville in 1902 by former Governor Francis P. Fleming, who was uh, the head of the Confederate Veterans of America group and an amateur historian. Um, the items that are in our research library here are the things we started collecting in 1902. The oldest thing we have in the collection is a um, map from 1571, a French map. And um, we things were donated to us throughout the years by lots of people who were concerned about Florida history because, unfortunately, Florida was the last state in the Union to get a state archives, which, believe it or not, was in 1967. So we were the only organization trying to preserve the documents of the state of Florida. Um, due to the fact that the state has never supported us, we were located in numerous different places from Jacksonville, St. Augustine, and Gainesville. Twice we were located at the P.K. Young Library. And um, in 1961, we moved to the University of South Florida Library's rare book room, and that's where we were housed until we moved over here to Brevard County. The Florida Historical Society moved their headquarters and their archival collection to Brevard County in 1992. Caroline P. Rossiter offered the Society an endowment if the organization would move to Brevard County and preserve her home as an historic house museum. Rossiter was a unique businesswoman, taking over her father's Standard Oil Agency in 1921 and operating it successfully for 62 years. The Florida Historical Society continues to manage the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens, but in 1997 they moved their administrative offices and their archival collection to historic Cocoa Village. The Library of Florida History is in the restored and remodeled 1939 WPA Post Office and Federal Building. Archivist Deborah Wynn walks us through the stacks of rare and out-of-print books. The collection, which we transferred over from USF Special Collections, they were in the back. They were all cataloged on their computer, but we did not have a catalog. So my, I'm the archivist 
I we purchased software and I cataloged all the books. Now the the books uh, are organized in the Library of Congress cataloging system, like at the University of South Florida, and we have a whole set of the War of the Rebellion papers. I think there's 180 books that are all the memos on both sides of the Civil War. We have the territorial papers and an excellent collection on archaeology. And um, we've got all those for the stacks for people to look at. Of course, this is a reference library, and nobody can take anything out. Then in the safe, we keep our really rare books. This is an interesting-looking safe. This is obviously left over from when this was a post office. Right. And we had to, when we redid the building, the safe did not have an air conditioning vent in it, so they vented it. And, and in, the, in the safe, we keep our rare books that are older than 1900, as well as our really valuable books. One of our most favorite book is an original first edition of The Yearling that was autographed by Marjorie Kinnon Rollins, who is a member of the Society, and she writes a long explanation of her inspiration for the book. And we have autographed copies of the Barefoot Mailman and uh, the uh, Everglades River of Grass by Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. She was a member, so was Theodore Platt. And then one of the most interesting books we have is a book that was donated to us when we were reorganized in 1902. And it's a 1605 edition of Florida Del Inca. And it was donated to us by Henry Flagler. It's rebound in Moroccan leather, and there's a note stuck in it that it says it was the first book donated to the society when it was reorganized in 1902. Even though 1605 is old, we have an older book that was given to us by George Fairbanks, the first... Um, he was the first really well-known historian of Florida, and it's from 1600. And it's all about uh, Hacklet's voyages, and it describes all the early discovery people who came and explored the United States. And they include descriptions of Sir Walter Raleigh's trip and um, Jacques Cartier. And the other thing that's really neat about it is whoever owned this book back a long time ago, it also... he. He did. Um, it looks like handwritten uh, drawings there the, along the margins. What do you of call it? Doodles. The guy <laughs> did a lot of doodles. It's a really interesting book, but it's very hard to read because it's in the Old English where S's are all F's. Another important thing we have is the famous archaeologist Clarence Bloomfield Moore, who was the first archaeologist to do any digs in Florida. We, uh, Francis P. Fleming wrote to him in early 1900, and uh, he sent us his personal copy of William Bartram's Travels from 1792, and also his first copy leather-bound books on the archaeology of Florida that have gold printing and they're just beautiful and we have a letter from him and uh, when he donated that book to us which we were very happy to get. Besides that we also have state publications from the territorial period um, that's even before statehood. Then we have a wonderful collection of federal documents pertaining to Florida, as well as some of the earliest editions of the Smithsonian Institution's um, publications, as well as the records of the court system in Florida. 
and um, we keep them all in the safe because, because uh, they are very valuable. Archivist Deborah Wynn is the only paid staff member at the Library of Florida History. As she explains, student interns and loyal volunteers make the operation of the library possible. Well, uh, right now we have a student from the uh, undergraduate student, history student from the University of Central Florida who's making a finding guide for our Pant and Leslie Indian Trader papers, which start in the 1700s and go through the mid-1800s. And he's been working on that. He has to put in, I believe, 150 hours. The El Destino Plantation papers, a student about 10 years ago made a finding guide in which we documented every every uh, piece of paper in the collection because it has a lot of really interesting information especially about the slaves and I've had high school student organize these are receipts from Fort Dade from 1838 and she made a finding guide identifying the things so that's the kind of things we have volunteers do. It's a rare day that volunteer George Speedy Harrell can't be found at the Library of Florida History Almost as many people come to get first-hand information from Speedy as they do to explore the archive. Harold is author of the book The St. John's From the Marshlands to the Atlantic with June Geiger and co-authored the books Coco and Rockledge and Central Brevard County with Ada Parrish and Clyde Field. In the mid-1980s, Speedy Harrell formed the Mosquito Beaters, an organization of people who have lived in Brevard County since before 1950. The Mosquito Beaters have loosened their membership criteria and have an office in the Library of Florida History. Speedy Harrell has a long history with the building. He was just a boy when it was being built in 1939, and he started delivering mail from there in 1948 when it was still a post office. Speedy was working at the post office in 1962 when federal agents brought in locked bags containing stamps to commemorate the historic flight of John Glenn, which would make him the first American to orbit the Earth. Speedy says the stamps were carefully monitored in case something went wrong with Glenn's flight. For about six weeks, there was uh, from 40 to 50 people working downstairs putting the stamps on those envelopes so they could be canceled with the Space Center postmark. It was established as a one-day uh, branch of the Cocoa Post Office. And, and those were all shipped out. But the only place you could buy that stamp that afternoon was here in Cocoa and in Washington, D.C. So there was a line of people formed around the building, lined up wanting to buy the uh, four-cent stamp, and they charged to five cents for the stamped envelope and postmarked with that postmark. So... I, I was inside, I was able to buy me about a nickel or ten cents worth of them. <laughs> and my wife had called and asked me to stop at a fried chicken place on the way home and bring our supper. So I stopped at the fried chicken place and they was questioning me about the the what was going on down here at the post office. So I gave them one of the envelopes cost me a nickel, and I don't know how much worth of fried chicken I got that afternoon for the nickel. Speedy Harrell watched the building at 435 Brevard Avenue in Cocoa being built when he was a boy, worked there as an adult when it was a post office, and saw it transformed into a federal building. Now, every day, he volunteers at the building, which is the Library of Florida History. The outside of the building is 
very near. In fact, the front of it is is exactly as it was. The uh, bars on the window have been changed. They were taken down and they're gone. They were an ornamental uh, grating. And the back door, there's a back door that goes out to Brevard Court that was not there during the process of continuing with the post office growing and whatever, they rented a building that was diagonally across the street and we had that for an annex and the back door was cut in where we could roll mail from here over there back and forth. And then when the post office vacated and it was a federal building, they put a roof on part of it there. But, and they walled up the loading dock that was open when it was first here. But basically the, the building is the same as it was. Of course, when the uh, federal government took over and put offices in, they put in a drop ceiling and they put in the restrooms that are upstairs. And then, of course, after the library got it and got a uh, uh, grant to restore it as much as they could and, and still make it look like a, it did, but be functional as a uh, library, the mezzanine was put in. The high ceilings that were in originally to... Uh, we didn't have air conditioning back in those days, so the, the windows in the high, tall ceiling left room to put the mezzanine in. So that's the internal changes. As Speedy Harrell explained, when the former post office and federal building was remodeled inside, the library designers took advantage of the high ceilings to create a mezzanine that looks down on the book stacks and research area below. Deborah Wynn takes us upstairs. Most What's up here are some of our older collections, which includes a very rare letter book. One of two letter books remain of the governor, John Milton, who was governor of Florida during the Civil War. His, his uh, family home burned down in the late 1800s, and his, all of his papers were destroyed, except for this letter book and another letter book that's up in uh, the state archives. And the only reason why it was preserved is it was in a metal box. And so it's in there, but they're, all the edges are, are burned. And then we have the papers of Richard Keith Call, who was a territorial governor of Florida that the society bought in the 1930s. And the papers of the El Destino Plantation, uh, which were in uh, Leon County. And uh, they're all the financial records that go back to the early 1800s. There's also the papers of Pleasant White, who was the commissary of the Confederacy during the uh, Civil War, and the papers of um, Francis P. Fleming, the former governor of Florida, who was uh, fought at the Battle of Gettysburg. And we also, he also had all the Civil War rosters that he had collected, and we have them here as well as papers from 
uh, the Pant and Leslie Indian Traders that's now being put on, the finding guides are going to be put online. We also have assorted miscellaneous manuscript collections that have to do with different genealogies, uh, papers about timber from uh, all the homes, papers from Jacksonville, and just assorted of miscellaneous manuscripts and a photo collection, which we are in the process of putting on the gallery on our website. The Library of Florida History also has a large collection of postcards, newspaper clipping files, magazines, biographical files, and much more. Here's our 1571 map, which is, shows the Cape Canaveral, which is the oldest place name on the North American map, and you can see it right here. We also have a couple copies of the Debray maps, the famous maps that were done when um, the French came and started Fort Caroline and they brought an artist with them and we have a couple different copies of those maps. We have, uh, we have a volunteer who's been working on our map collection making a finding guide and we have 2,000 catalog maps and another thousand that haven't been cataloged yet. As we walk out of the Library of Florida History through the beautiful marble and terrazzo lobby, Deborah Wynn points out copies of other impressive items from the collection on display. We have the only known poster announcing the end of Spanish rule in Florida. It's from 1821, and it's in Spanish, and um, it, it, nobody, it's the only one that, that anybody has ever seen, and it's one of our proudest uh, possessions besides all the papers of the, from the Patriot Rebellion, including the Constitution of the Republic of East Florida from 1812. The Library of Florida History in Cocoa is the statewide headquarters of the Florida Historical Society. This program is produced in the basement of the library at 435 Brevard Avenue in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. That's the Antioch Junior Choir recorded in 1970 at the Florida Folk Festival singing about a metaphorical fence of protection. In the era of segregation in Florida from the mid-1800s to the mid-1900s, metaphorical fences were built to constrain African-American communities. Janie Gould has this look at racial segregation. Joe Idolette was the first black elected to the Indian River County School Board. His father moved to the area in 1923. He helped build Beachland Boulevard and later worked for the railroad. At that time and for many years afterwards, blacks in Indian River County worked and shopped in Vero Beach, but lived in Gifford. At night, that was a bell that they rang, and uh, the bell was an indication that it was time for black folk to get out of town. You went to Vero to work. When you left work, you came back to Gifford. What about shopping? Well, you could shop in the stores, of course. You could spend your money, but you didn't have the privilege to try on the uh, garments, even the hats. You just merely bought what you wanted and you left. And if it didn't fit, that was your problem later on. This was in your father's time. Did it carry over to your time? And I'm 
guessing you were born in about, what, late 30s? I was born in 1933, and basically there was little change, if any. I can remember very vividly the public courthouse. If you needed a drink of water, you didn't drink out of the fountain in the courthouse. You had a spigot out on the lawn that had a sign that said colored. The train station, you know, the bus station, and uh, everything was separate. Did you give that much thought at the time? I really didn't because that's just the way life was. The most devastating thing for me was that if you were traveling and you needed to use the bathroom, filling station, you could buy gas, but you couldn't use the bathroom. You just basically had to do the best you could, you know, find the woods or something and, uh, and use it. Joe Idolette went to school in Gifford, including Gifford High School. Everything we got at the school was uh, hand-me-downs from Vero Beach High School, basically. Uh, we didn't have heat in the school. I can remember when it was uh, cold. The teachers used to take us outside on the side of the school where the sun was shining. We never had a library. We never had a science department. Not even any courses in chemistry or biology? Or- we had the books, but we didn't have a science department per se where we had the instruments that you work with, no lab at all. When books were issued, we never had enough. Usually a book was issued to about three or four students. How did you manage doing homework and things like that? Our teachers really spent a lot of their own money. We didn't have printers at that time, but I remember a little, I don't forgot what they called it, but it's had some kind of gel in it, and they would take and print stuff for us to take home. I don't know if you remember that. You're not old enough. Are you talking about purple mimeograph? Right. I am old enough. They would take that mimeograph and uh, try and make uh, work for us to take home. After high school, Idolette served in the Korean War. He later attended Bethune-Cookman College and Indian River Community College. He worked in classified data at Cape Canaveral. In 1974, he ran for the school board and was re-elected every term for the next 20 years. It was a period of growth for the school system. New schools, new programs, the first computers, and air conditioning. Only one school, Vero Beach High School, had air conditioning in 1974. Really, in retrospect, I don't know how teachers and students made it <laughs> before the air conditioning, really. And I was one of those students. It was a struggle with the heat just to hold your eyes open, you know, you get sleepy. He says things are much better in Indian River County these days. Race relations are very much better. People have really got to know each other in a personal manner. You find out, well, this person is not very much different from me. That was Joe Idolette. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Recent studies have shown that the preservation of historic buildings and sites pumps more than $4 billion into Florida's economy every year through tourism and increased property values. Bill Dudley takes us to one such place, the old Custom House in Key West. On the horizon, it looks like a torch from a distance. Very often, tourists will say to me, you know, I saw that building and I just had to find out what it, what it was. And we say, well, 
This building has welcomed immigrants to Key West for well over 100 years. It was supposed to be a beacon. It was supposed to bring you here. Key West Art and Historical Society Executive Director Claudia Pennington. She's talking about the Custom House, the large red brick building with its bright red roof that dominates the city's waterfront. The story of the Custom House and why it was built and what it did over its 115-year history is one of the really important stories, we think, in Key West. By the mid-1800s, the salvaging of wrecked ships had made Key West Florida's richest city, as well as one of its largest. But by 1880, with wrecking on the decline thanks to lighthouses and better charts, the city was becoming known for another industry, fine cigars made from imported Cuban tobacco. Monroe County historian Tom Hambright. The internal revenue collected by the Port of Key West was more than the rest of the state of Florida and part of Georgia put together because of the import duties primarily on the tobacco. Key West was several years in the top 10 ports in the United States for foreign imports. Customs coming in and out of Key West Harbor were extremely important to the economy and to everything that happened in this as a seafaring community. Key West architect Bert Bender oversaw the restoration of the building. And that building, the reason it has a red roof is so that people could identify the custom house as they were coming in from the sea. In the interests of saving money, the federal government used the same plans for the Key West building as it had used in the northern states. The design, by a young architect named H.H. Richardson, called for a heavy brick structure in what was called the Romanesque style. I think it's one of the most significant historic structures in the state of Florida, simply because it is one of the few, if not the only, Richardsonian Romanesque buildings. H.H. Richardson was very popular in the 19th century. He died at a young age, but he fathered, we could say, this particular style of architecture, the very heavy arches, terracotta, brickwork. And in order to build it, they had to bring in a lot of specialists because the people who lived in Key West were not familiar with this Romanesque architecture style. There isn't anything else like it here. So they built the building with the chimneys and the very steep roof so the snow would not accumulate in a very tropical setting. It was like a standard model. And in some ways, it's, it's fortunate. You have a, a huge, well-insulated, three-story brick building that becomes quite an architectural landmark for the city of Key West. Public Relations Director Steve Pratt. was the only real substantial structure for a very long time. And it's one of the two buildings in the city that actually has a full basement. The red brick landmark with its bright red roof was completed in 1891. Over the next century, it would stand witness to a lot of Florida history. When the Maine exploded in Havana Harbor, they brought the survivors here and they held a naval court of inquiry to find out, was it an act of terrorism? You know, was it a deliberate attempt to destroy a Navy ship? And what they decided was there was a just cause to go to war. And it also served as the federal building. The courthouse and the post office were all in that building. And the, the famous wrecking court also met in that building. The custom house as it stands today is the result of a nine-year, $9 million restoration project, one that raises some larger questions about the preservation of Florida's architectural treasures. It lived through the richest days and the poorest days in the 1930s. It was used by the Navy during the Second World War. It was compartmentalized, repainted, ceilings lowered. 
and then got to a point that it was an abandoned hulk, right about the time it was placed on the National Register of Historic Places. So there's this, you know, question, I mean, how do you save the building? And it has been a long struggle to do this. If we'd have knocked it down and built ourselves a new museum, we could have done it for a lot less money. But we wouldn't dream of doing that. And I think the importance, too, is the reuse of the building. I mean, if we had restored it, put back all the wonderful plaster work and the beautiful wood, and then turned it over to a yacht club, no one would enjoy it. No one would learn about it. And the history of the building is the important thing. Saving it, yes, but why? So that people can learn about the history. And in this case, it's not just the history of the building, it's the history of Key West over 100 years. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week and visit us on the web anytime at myfloridahistory.org. You can buy great books about Florida, check out upcoming special events, become a member of the Florida Historical Society, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.